0: Ah, come on! Feeling like you might freak out? Try Guaranteed Ride Home from Commuter Connections. If you ride share to work, you are eligible to receive a couple of free rides home each year, guaranteed. Why freak out about getting home in case of illness, unexpected emergencies, or unscheduled overtime? Register or renew today for free at commuterconnections.org or 800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply.
1: emergency 911 operator 6752, do you need police, fire, or ambulance? i ambulance. Who was the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think of somebody with an intruder in the house. Initially when we got on the scene there were a lot of things that just didn't make sense. The story didn't make sense as far
2: as anything being cleaned up. It was more or less of everything looked staged. And if you care about Kathy Wan, if you care
0: about Robert Wan, you would share that information.
2: Having a murder on your conscience is no small load to carry.
1: 2nd 2006 robert juan a 32-year-old married attorney was found stabbed to death inside the home of a friend in washington dc a murder still unsolved that is one of the district's most chilling haunting and mind-boggling in recent memory four people were inside the swan street house that night but the only charges came more than two years later victor Zaborski, joseph price a partner in a top dc law firm and dylan ward three gay men who consider themselves a family were all charged with obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and tampering with evidence. After a bench trial that lasted six weeks, all three men were acquitted. What follows is a podcast about the crime that had Washington-area residents transfixed for years, who murdered Robert Wong, and why. I'm Paul Wagner, a reporter with WTTG-TV, Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., I've covered this case from the days after the murder through the trial of the three men, a period of more than four years. Throughout this podcast series, I have at times read directly from portions of the court document that was written by Detective Brian Wade and made public in November of 2008. An affidavit that laid out the evidence in the case, and by reading it word for word, it's been my hope that you could better understand the crime scene and what investigators had to work with as they took the case to court. I am now going to read word for word the conclusion of the document on page 12 detective wade wrote this the evidence demonstrates that robert Wong was restrained incapacitated sexually assaulted and murdered inside 1509 swan street northwest on the evening of august 2nd 2006. moreover there exists overwhelming evidence far in excess of probable cause that all three price zaborski and ward obstructed justice by altering and orchestrating the crime scene, planting evidence, delaying the reporting of the murder to the authorities, and lying to the police about the true circumstances of the murder when interviewed by the authorities in the immediate aftermath of the homicide. Specifically, there is abundant evidence that the three residents of 1509 Swan Street delayed their call to the authorities for an extended period of time, as evidenced by, among other things, a gap in time from as little as 19 minutes or as many as 49 minutes between time the scream was heard by Witness 3 and the time Zaborski placed the call to 911. Indeed, the evidence suggests that the scream came not from Mr. Juan, who was already incapacitated at the time he was stabbed, but rather from Zaborski, who admitted to the police that he screamed upon seeing Robert's body. The significant delay in reporting is further demonstrated by the fact that Mr. Juan actively digested his own blood for a significant period of time after he had been stabbed. The forensic pathologist opined that the three stab wounds were inflicted while the victim was incapacitated. There were hemorrhages in the victim's eyes consistent with an asphyxia event. Additionally, there were multiple pre-mortem needle puncture marks to Mr. Juan's body that were not the product of any legitimate medical treatment or intervention suggesting that he had been drugged by injection allowing for a sexual assault to take place. The fact that Mr. Juan's semen was found on and around his genitals on his anus and in his rectum is consistent with a sexual assault of some kind, especially in light of the assertions of Price Zaborski and Ward that Mr. Wan was heterosexual and had showered right before going to bed in the guest room. Moreover, there were many items and devices recovered from Ward's bedroom designed to be inserted into one's anal cavity. The size of the knife found on the nightstand in the guest room is inconsistent with the nature of the wounds. However, the knife missing from Ward's cutlery set is more consistent with the depth of the wounds to Mr. Wan's torso. According to the blood pattern expert, the blood pattern on the knife is inconsistent with having been used during the stabbing, but consistent with the blood having been placed or wiped onto the blade using a towel. The knife was found to have multiple white cotton fibers consistent with the white towel recovered from the floor of the guest room inferentially demonstrating that the towel was used to place blood on the knife and transferring towel fiber to the knife during that process. Conversely, there were no gray t-shirt fibers found on the knife as one would expect given the three apparent cuts to Mr. Wan's t-shirt consistent with the locations of the stab wounds to this torso. Contrary to what each of the three residents told the police, that being that the towel was used to put pressure on Mr. Wan's wounds, the towel itself had a blood pattern inconsistent with having been placed on Mr. Wan's wounds. Rather, according to the blood pattern expert, the blood pattern on the towel was consistent with having been used to place blood on the planted knife. There were only two modest spots of blood on the bed, which is inconsistent with the quantity of blood that would have flowed from Mr. Wan's body given the nature of the injuries, according to Dr. Goslanowski. Importantly, there were no other bloody towels or bloody areas anywhere in the residence accounting for the alarming lack of blood on the scene and on the body. The absence of any significant quantity of blood from the bed and the crisp and near pristine condition of the bed in which Mr. Wan was discovered by paramedics is entirely inconsistent with a violent stabbing having been perpetrated in that bed. The cadaver dog alert on the rear stairwell drain and the lint filter of the clothes dryer suggest that bloody clothing or items were cleaned off in the backyard stairwell and then placed in the clothes dryer to dry. Finally, there was not one shred of non-fanciful evidence that there was any intruder present inside 1509 Swan Street at around the time Robert Wong was killed. For all these reasons, your affiant respectfully requests that a warrant issued for the arrest of Dylan Ward for obstruction of justice. That is the end of the court affidavit and all I am going to read from the document in this episode. Throughout this series, you've been hearing from prosecutor Glenn Kirshner and his description of the evidence in the case. When we sat down for an interview in August, I asked him about the theory Robert Juan had been incapacitated before he was sexually assaulted and killed. Keep in mind, when Price, Ward and Zaborsky went to trial, they were not facing murder or sexual assault charges. They were only facing charges of obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice and tampering with evidence. During the autopsy, strange and unusual puncture marks were found on Juan's body but the toxicology report turned up no incapacitating drugs. Since we're talking about the possibility of drugs being used and him being injected with something that incapacitated him, was this a a fault of the medical examiner's office and the toxicology in not checking for certain drugs? No, because as you know, Paul,
0: given your many years of great coverage of the crime beat in Washington, D.C., autopsies are performed immediately after the body is found and transported to the medical examiner's office. It took months and months and months thereafter for us to begin to unravel and begin to even start figuring out what in the world happened in that house. So I think the medical examiner, Dr. Lois Kozlanoski, did a great job, she did what she should do. She did a sex kit, which was how we found the semen um, on and in Robert, where we found it. Um, So she really had no reason to excise, that is to cut out the needle puncture marks and retain them for future toxicology testing. So I learned about the wonderful world of paralytics and succinylcholine, which I, I think is the most frequently used anesthetic in hospital procedures. So what I came to learn, Paul, was that succinylcholine is is a very effective paralytic anesthetic. Um, It's made up largely of components that are naturally occurring in the body, so you can't even detect it unless you know to, for example, excise out the skin around the needle puncture mark, because you might be able to determine from future testing of that, that there's succinylcholine in there. Otherwise, they did all the appropriate tox screenings for the appropriate drugs in this case. They just didn't know to go beyond that.
1: It took Kirshner and his team more than two years before he was comfortable in making the first arrest, a calculated move he hoped would pay off with a confession. Was it your decision to pick up Dylan first? It would have been a decision
0: coordinated with a team of people. It would have been the homicide detectives. It would have been myself. It was probably also my U.S. attorney, my front office. Um, you know, we didn't make a significant move in this case without coordinating it with um, other folks. But your hope was to get break him. Dylan alone. Our, our hope was to break one of these witnesses, one of these suspects, and have them testify truthfully against the other. Um, And obviously that never did come
1: to fruition. And uh, let me just be very clear. The only time you had an opportunity to get their stories was that night from the 2nd into the 3rd of August of 2006, correct? So obviously the
0: police interviewed them immediately after the murder and got accounts at that point. The next opportunity that we collectively as law enforcement would have had to interview any of them was when they were arrested, advised of their rights, and waived their rights. I I don't remember at what point they retained lawyers, but that can also change legally change our ability to interview them unless and until we go through counsel. That's just generally speaking, I don't remember the particulars here. Um, But then of course, once they're represented, we can and will Go through their attorneys and say, listen, we would like to speak with your client. If he'd be willing to come in and debrief under you know what we call Queen for a Day immunity, a debriefing letter saying you can speak with us and we cannot use your statements against you unless you lie in trial, that sort of thing. There's some caveats. So, you know, we would have reached out to all three defense attorneys to see if their clients were willing to come in and debrief. But I'll tell you. This three-person unit was so tight and cohesive, and I think they all knew that it would have been mutual destruction if any of them agreed to come in and talk with us, that we never did develop a cooperating witness, as we call it, somebody that would plead guilty, accept responsibility for what they did, and testify against the others. So you pick up Dylan,
1: did you go down there? I didn't go to Florida, no. So uh, Detective Danny Whalen did. So Danny Whalen went down there. um, And was the idea then, if Dylan uh, waived his uh, Miranda rights and agreed to talk, that, that Danny Whalen would have been the one to interrogate him at that point? Yes. On November 19, 2008, the charges were made public and the news hit like a cyclone, especially in the gay community, where there was still support for the three men. Dylan Ward, Joe Price, and Victor Zaborski had all hired high-profile defense attorneys, a team that came to be known as the Million Dollar Defense. Prosecutor Kirshner knew all of them well. David Shurtler and Tom Conley had both worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office with Kirshner, and Bernie Grimm was already well-known in the criminal justice arena as someone not afraid to take on a high-profile case. Joe Price had originally hired another attorney before turning to Grimm, who recently sat down with me to talk about the case Ugh. not again feeling like you might freak out Try Guaranteed Ride Home from Commuter Connections. If you ride share to work, you're eligible for a couple of free rides home each year, guaranteed. Why freak out about getting home in case of illness, unexpected emergencies, or unscheduled overtime? Register or renew today for free at commuterconnections.org or 800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply.
2: Joe decided to make the change. It's, uh... I guess it's like a doctor. Sometimes you might feel comfortable with one physician. I'll feel comfortable with another. It's it's nobody's better than the other person, I wouldn't say.
1: So how long after the murder were you retained by Joe Price?
2: Oh, it was was over a year. Uh, This was a cancer on all three of these young men that they just could not surgically remove. The government was in their lives, over their shoulders... We're going to get you. It's a matter of time. Dylan Ward retained David Shertler,
1: and Victor Zaborski hired Tom Conley.
2: High-end, shortlist, best criminal defense lawyers, or top five or six in the city.
1: Shirtler, a former... Prosecutor, in fact, the head of the Homicide Division at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Right. And Tom Conley, also a former prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's
2: Office. Tom Conley, two tours, U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., U.S. Attorney's Office in Virginia. You first learned of the indictment when you heard that Dylan Ward had been arrested. Correct, because based on that indictment, a, a, a warrant was issued. Normally, his lawyer would have learned that through a phone call, but he was kept in the blind And the tactical reason behind that, there's nothing wrong with that, is they went to Dylan Ward. So then they had him alone again and said, listen, here's your only chance. We know what you told us the first time. That was a lie. We'll forget about it. Tell us the truth. And Dylan Ward said, what I told you the first time was the truth. I have nothing else to say. And from Florida to D.C., it took them 31 days to get him here. So they wanted to sweat him.
1: And sweat them, they did, but um, he never changed his story.
2: Whether it was a lie or whether it was the truth, he never changed his story, not to the time he went to bed, not to the time he got up, not to every... His story was virtually word for word from what he said over a year ago. So once they got indicted, that's when we started to receive the discovery and the fact that they eliminated... The fact that there was a break-in, that there was an intruder. So if there's four people in a house and the house is locked shut and one person ends up dead, three of them, two of them, one of them had to have killed the fourth person is the theory. So we had to start our investigation from ground one and restart it again.
1: And so your uh, work took more than two years before you even went to trial.
2: Right. Of course. Well, I mean, the government government had all its time to conduct its investigation in secret. And we had to start from there, look at their investigation, uh, not only what they had, but what they didn't have, and wondering why out loud, why the house was virtually, it looked like it was gutted after a fire. Uh, Everybody had to move out the
1: break-in bernie grimm is referring to happened about three months after robert Wan was killed a 2006 burglary that would play a role in the trial in 2010 joe price's brother michael and another man were arrested and charged with stealing electronics from the house on swan street a crime that will come into focus later in this series tell me a little bit about how much how much work goes into your defense in a three-year period there i mean the government has to turn over Brady material to you, um, uh, and and are they t- turning it over in a in a in a bulk sense, or were you getting it piecemeal?
2: They weren't turning it over. Um, the Brady information. Let me just give you one example. In order to, we went to. Well, I'll answer two of your questions. You said you had to do your investigation. What's that like? Let me give you one piece of the investigation that represented about 6% of the case. When the police came in, they were looking for for blood on the walls, on the floors. You can use luminol, but the up-to-date, cutting-edge chemical is a concept called Ashley's Reagent. That was invented by a guy, a chemist down in Florida called Mr. Ashley. I flew to Florida to meet him. I showed him the photographs of how it was applied to the walls. And he said to me, when I taught at the D.C. Police Academy, I told them not to apply it in this fashion. So they applied it to, you can't apply it to vertical walls because it drips and it doesn't, it doesn't come off. That's just one, that's one aspect of the investigation, but that's, that's a week work of work and I have to educate myself on Ashley's reagent.
1: Finding blood inside the house was important to the prosecution's theory. The scene had been cleaned up before the call was made to 911, but prosecutor Glenn Kirshner admits some mistakes were made.
0: The big ticket mistake was understandable, but um, it had to be dealt with. They they used a product, a forensic product. We call it a reagent to um, process the crime scene to look for latent blood, blood that had been cleaned up, but there was still a, a telltale trace of it. They used the wrong reagent, the wrong chemical product. They used one that was designed to do something entirely different. Basically raise raise the visib- visibility of a fingerprint that was kind of drenched in blood. I don't want to get down into the weeds, but mm-hmm. they used the wrong reagent. And I know because I had to talk to the manufacturer of this reagent. I had to disclose all these matters to the defense attorneys so they could use it. They could exploit it to their advantage at trial. That's, that's fair, that's, that's what we do. We find bad evidence and we turn it over to the defense so they can use it to the advantage of their clients. But yeah, that was a mistake by the
1: police department. Bernie Grimm says he and the other members of the defense team then had to investigate a claim by a Swan Street neighbor of the three men that the killer, if one did come in from the outside, may have entered the wrong house.
2: The uh, next thing is, and, and you talk about Brady material, this is something that i guess the government's definition of brady's if somebody stands on the capitol and confesses to the kennedy assassination someone might think that that could exculpate lee rv oswald i don't know it seems to me that would but um maybe i'm not understanding what the supreme court says but for your your listeners brady information is anything that exculpates your client or could tend to exculpate your client we were trying to take pictures of prices backyard The house had already been purchased by somebody else who either wasn't home or wouldn't let us in. So we went to the neighbor's house. Said, can we get on your top deck and take pictures down into the backyard? So we talked to the housekeeper. She was very nice. And she said, listen, can you stay here? You need to talk to the owner because this is very important. He'll want to talk to you. He flies home from Belize nonstop and agrees to meet us the next day. We come in and he tells He's visibly shaken, and he tells the following story. And let me stop you right there. This was, what period of time are we talking about? This is uh, Price had hired me. We had a trial date set. Okay, so, so this is considerable amount of time after the murder.
1: Correct, correct. Okay. And the and this person who owned this home was directly adjacent to the house at 1509 Swan?
2: 1509, and then right to its left is 150 uh, right to, yes 1509 1511 is the house right next door and he says him he and his wife had gone through a, a very bad divorce a lot of it had to do with custody of their single child and it there were in the shadows there was allegations that one might do violence to the other since robert wone was murdered in the front guest room of the house, and whether he was murdered or not, is a whole separate issue. We don't know if Robert Wan actually killed himself, so it may not be a homicide at all, but that's another question. But the testimony at trial from two medical examiners was that
1: Robert Wan was incapacitated at the time he was stabbed, and that the wounds would have looked much different had he been not. Glenn Kirshner says Grimm's suggestion of a suicide couldn't be more despicable, more laughable, and disrespectful to
2: the victim's family, calling it an unsupportive claim. These houses all, if you paint them all white, they will look the same. This man had thought that his wife had hired an assassin to kill him, and the person broke into the wrong house and killed the wrong person. That night, the police came over and told his house, and they were taking pictures from the next-door neighbor, and the housekeeper said, I, I think you want to talk to the owner of my house. He's going to have something to say. And he said, that's all right. The guys who did it, we already have locked up, which is my client and the other two guys who had been locked up 10 minutes before. To be clear, Bernie Grimm is claiming the police told the neighbor's
1: housekeeper the night of the murder they didn't need to hear the homeowner's story because... They already had the men who committed the crime locked up, and by locked up, Grim means the three men in the house that night, Zaborski, Price, and Ward, had all been taken down to homicide for questioning. Charges wouldn't be filed for another two years.
2: To answer your question that you asked a half an hour ago, we weren't <laughs> getting Brady information. We discovered it on our own, and this wasn't... The husband didn't say, uh on a on a on a whim i thought my wife and sass assassinated me in the backyard was a his own backyard was a sandbox his backyard that was adjacent to price a sandbox and there was a vulcanized rubber cover to the sandbox the uh, housekeeper came out the next day and there were two footprints in it as if someone had jumped over the six foot foot high fence and landed right in it the, the killer supposedly now you know i'm not saying that this is what happened but this is something that should have been looked at the owner of the house said my wife was i'm not tried to kill me that's why i was out of town with my son and i think the killer may have gone to the wrong house i know these guys they take out the trash i say hello i see him barbecuing this didn't happen consistent with what every neighbor said
1: so let me stop you there
2: right now this is a different neighbor
1: than this person who claimed to have heard the scream, right. correct? Correct. Okay.
2: You have book in. Go ahead. You have book All right. it. Go so ahead. let me,
1: but let me just so that I'm clear on that. But then this theory that this guy says that he thought that perhaps somebody could have come to kill him, that never entered into evidence in the trial, did it? Uh, we tried to get it in, and it was blocked. Initially, the detectives, when they got in the house, getting a look at the scene, a look at the house they immediately were highly suspicious of the intruder theory from jump. Correct. And even in their interviews down at Homicide that overnight into the next morning, they questioned that extensively, saying it doesn't seem to make too much sense here. Okay. Now, the judge in her decision in the end said that she didn't believe the intruder theory. In fact, she believed that it wasn't true at all and that somebody in that house that night either knew what had
2: happened had taken part, but you couldn't prove it. That's ultimately what you decided, right? Correct. And Judge leibwitz we had a hard time in our defense. We had a hard time. You can claim intruder, and you're presumed innocent, but let's put the Constitution aside because it exists in movies and books. It may not exist in reality in the courthouse. Am I old? Am I jaded? Perhaps. But I go into that courthouse every day believing that this is, it might be trite, that people are presumed innocent. I, I wish that were true. But if you put on, if you claim in your opening intruder theory, you better have some evidence to prove it. Um, the government said this is a nice neighborhood. These things like this didn't happen. And they called a, a sergeant from the 3rd District to say this is a very good area. Crime sort of happened. So we were able to cross-examine with the fact that two nights earlier, there was a home invasion two doors down where a guy came in to, with, came in a house through the skylight didn't do anything just terrorized everybody but didn't steal anything the government's also got a good theory if it's an intruder and he kills somebody it might be somebody who's mentally ill it might be somebody on drugs whatever happens they're going to take something they're going to take jewelry they're going to take uh, portraits they had I don't know if you recall they had very expensive sort of Van Gogh's and Rembrandt's
1: Well, they also had electronics sitting right there. There was a computer sitting right there. There was a flat-screen TV.
2: There were a couple of wallets, and none of that was taken. None of that was taken. So how in the world do you end up with a guy who's friends with everybody, who my client organized uh, and threw a surprise party for him? Uh, My client organized two charities uh, with him, nonprofits that he organized with Robert. They exchanged texts the night before the murder and saying, uh, Robert, are we still good to have breakfast together with this third person who's going to give us backing to start this, uh, uh, this nonprofit. Uh So it's very, very, very bizarre and strange. Common sense dictated to me, my client was guilty. Doesn't change it. I'm not there. I'm not God. I represent him to the best of my ability. But once I got to know Price, there are in 30 years there's probably 30 to 50 clients where you sit down and after hours and hours of spending time with him and his family you just say in your gut this is the worst case in the world for me because he's probably innocent, factually innocent and those are the cases where you wake up with panic attacks at 3 in the morning. Did I do something wrong? The trial's tomorrow and then we come to, I see where we you are setting up, we get to the cataclysmic, seismic decision of whether we have a jury trial or a judge trial. In the District of Columbia, people charged with
1: the crime have the right to choose between a jury trial or a bench trial. In this case, Bernie
2: Grimm says some thought went into that decision. You have three young white professionals in a three-way relationship. doesn't matter to me, um, but if we get a jury with older Baptist African-American women, they're going to think perhaps, not that they're closed-minded, but they're gonna think perhaps this is freakish. What are these guys doing? And they had all the implements that that you have in a a three-way relationship. Some of the instruments, looks like they belong in a gymnasium, but you realize that they don't. Uh, They're used for another purpose. So we thought a jury could think these guys are freaky and they're gonna do something like this. They're gonna murder some guys who's heterosexual. We we couldn't have that. A strategy Glenn Kirshner says the government
1: could have objected to. You know,
2: I think
0: anytime you're trying a case to the bench, to the judge, as opposed to, to a jury, you make different tactical decisions because there are things that a judge will intuitively know that, um, means you can sort of jettison some of what you might intended to put on for the benefit of a jury Um, one of the interesting issues might have been a dilemma um, two potentially bad options was whether we were going to object to their request to waive a jury trial because under the rules the prosecutor can object to it under after consultation with my front office uh, was decided that we would not object we have the absolute right to object to a defendant's request to waive a jury trial. So it's not in the discretion of the judge at that point. So we could have forced this to a jury. Let me tell you what my concern was. You could have forced it to the jury. We could have forced it to a jury. We could have have said, we oppose their request to waive a jury. The government wants a jury trial. The people of the District of Columbia want a jury trial and the judge couldn't have gotten around that. Can I tell you one of my concerns though, Paul? These three men led uh, an unconventional lifestyle. I'm not criticizing it. Um, not, not expressly and not, you know, obliquely. They get a right to live any lifestyle they want as long as they're not hurting other people. But there was a lot of evidence in this case that I was concerned a jury might look at and draw negative inferences and conclusions about these three men that would have had nothing to do with whether they covered up this crime or not. And frankly, it's our job as prosecutors to be fair to defendants, first and foremost. I've had to dismiss homicide cases because there was some deficiency in the evidence or the police work, and I had to do the right thing, even if it made me unhappy and uncomfortable, and and dismiss a case, because it's all about protecting a defendant's rights, not only promoting victims' rights and protecting the community. And I, you know, I think prosecutors sometimes get a bad rap, and people, you just want to win at all costs. No, nonsense. I didn't want a jury looking at these three defendants and their lifestyle and drawing negative inferences against them that might have colored their perception of the evidence and not given these three men a fair trial. So that was one of many factors that went into our decision that, you know what, if they want to judge trial, we're not going to oppose it.
1: The trial began on May 17, 2010 and continued for six weeks. This podcast would not be possible without the help of producer, editor Nelson Jones, a photojournalist here at Fox 5. In the next episode, we cover the trial.
2: We had a packed house every day and for closing arguments they had to open up another courtroom uh, for people that wanted to listen.